0: Welcome to Data Talks. Before I start our episode today, I would like to invite you all who is watching us on YouTube or hearing us in Spotify on another podcast aggregator that all the episodes are also available in our website: data-talks.uni minus munster with e.de During the Data Talks project, uh, we have been talking about the use of technology and availability of data in concrete, although complex situations, such as health, education, corruption fighting, climate change, etc. Then this episode is a bit different. The relationship between science fiction and technology goes beyond imagining what devices will be produced or the design of clothes in the future. Science fiction helps us think also about the moral dilemmas with wi the fundamental human issues, the relationship between technology, power, and coercion, and the relationship of men among themselves. And to talk about that, uh, we have two special guests with us today from Brazil. We have received today Dr. Veridiana Domingos-Cordeiro. Veridiana is a sociologist and researcher, currently a postdoc research fellow at the C4AI, Center for Artificial Intelligence, supported by IBM, FAPESP, and the University of São Paulo. Veridiana holds a master's degree and a PhD uh, in sociology, And for the past 11 years, she has been developing research on sociology of mind, sociology of memory, digital sociology, sociology of artificial intelligence, sociology of knowledge, and social theory. She's the author of the books Sociology in Brazil, a brief institutional and intellectual story, and wrote chapters for many books, including The Risk Perception of Artificial Intelligence, Automata's Inner Movie, Science and Philosophy of Mind, and Pau Grave Handbook of Digital Everyday Life, the last one to be published. Verigiana, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Jessica. It's a pleasure to talk with you both today and I've been watching Data Talks and it's such a nice project. So I am always glad that Academia enables us to build this uh, transnational bridges. Well, thank you. (laughs) And from Germany,
0: we have today with us Dr. Isabella Herrmann. Isabella is a speaker, writer, and curator in the field of science fiction, which she considers a mirror of our present and a metaphor for the future. Isabella is currently co-director of the Berlin Sci-Fi Film Fest, the first genre-specific sci-fi film festival in Germany. She holds a master's degree and a PhD degree in political science, And in her work, she focuses on how science fiction and visions of technology construct and reflect sociopolitical structures and world politics. Topics here include artificial intelligence, Anthropocene, climate change, and space travel. Her work experience also includes the scientific coordinator of a research project on AI and human responsibility at the Berlin Brandenburg Academy of Science and the program director of the Present Futures Forum at the Technical University of Berlin. Isabella, thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I also, I also think it's quite cool to have this um, German-Brazilian bridge today.
0: Well, thank you. Let's. Uh, I, I also expect a really interesting conversation. And I would like to start with Veridiana. Uh, Veridiana so I have two questions, actually. Uh, do you call yourselves C4AI or C4AI? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was with this, uh, this, this, uh, this question in my mind. <laughs> you are completely right, it's C4AI. C4AI, so OK. So could you explain to us briefly uh, what is the work of C4AI and what are the key areas that you are researching?
1: Right. Um... C4AI, it's the Center for Artificial Intelligence. It is in Brazil at the University of Sao Paulo. And it is a partnership between IBM and Sao Paulo Foundation. So uh, from IBM's side, it is uh, the center is part of the AI Horizons Network, which is a program created in 2016 to promote the collaboration among universities around the world for developing research on AI. And the center was established last year in 2020 uh, as a research center for producing advanced research in AI, for um, debating and and disseminating the topic for training students, but but mainly for transferring this knowledge and technology to society because uh, University of Sao Paulo as uh, the main university of latin america has this public commitment as a major major value as a public university and regarding the areas the center is organized around five main areas of research one is for natural language processing uh, especially in portuguese which is pretty underdeveloped because uh, this is a huge challenge, uh, technically speaking. There is one research strand for reasoning on ocean data based on machine learning. And um, by ocean data, I mean, specifically what we call as Blue Amazonia, this maritime Brazilian territory. Um, There is another front related to agribusiness So uh, they work on decision-making in in food prediction networks. Um, There is another area in health studies uh, where they work with machine learning for stroke diagnosis and and stroke rehabilitation. And the last one, it's AI humanity. It's an area that thinks over uh, the future of work, about uh, diversity and inclusion, AI and society. So there are these completely different five areas because AI is interdisciplinary and affects all all the domains of social and natural life. And these areas are gathered together around C4AI. So I think that is um, a baby born project but it has a lot of potentialities and, and I think it will be very important for Latin America. This is very
0: interesting, especially because we are talking about different areas, but they, they as you mentioned, they talk with each other. They are the challenges that we are facing. Uh, some of uh, the, some challenges are more Brazilian challenges, like agrobusiness is uh, a, a really a structure of our economy. So it makes sense that Center research about this and is really interesting. All the the groups were created last year in 2020 or they pre-existed before?
1: Actually, I think that all these research trends were going on inside the university and Mm -hmm. the Center and IBM and Sao Paulo Foundation, they came to aggregate the research areas and especially to fund properly these research areas. So now we have like uh, a facility where everybody can join together and have meetings and develop research together. So in 2020, uh, it was the year when they really established, established formally the center. Well, thank you very much.
0: I will go now to Isabella. Isabella, you work simultaneously with cinema, more specifically in the theme of science fiction and also uh, work to contribute on the debate on the relationship on visions of technology and social Mm -hmm. political structures. Uh, What has been a trend in science fiction films in the last years regarding the portrait of
2: technology and what does it tell about our society? Um, Yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, for sure, artificial intelligence has been a trend, because of that we're making the link now, you know, with the um, event of today. Um, So we see that, I think it's around 2010, science fiction films um, featuring artificial intelligence in all its forms, you know, in robots or assistants or um, artificial general, general intelligence and conscious systems. Um, those films are really mushrooming and this goes hand in hand with um, the actual development. And it's not only, you know, mainstream films, it's also independent films like in the Berlin Sci-Fi Film Fest. And it's also in literature, we see that too. Um, for example, authors like Ayn McEwan who are not really uh, famous for science fiction, they do write books now on the topic. So his book was Machines Like Me, um, for example. And um, this interlinkage between, you know, real technological development and science fiction is, um, I mean, we have seen that before, for example, with um, the topic of cloning. In 1994, the sheep Dolly was cloned and then afterwards, um, also films and books on the topic were mushrooming. And what I think is quite important is that science fiction, even though it is connected to real tech development because there is this hype, there is this trend, everyone's talking about it. And it's not really about the technology. Um, I mean, science fiction is like a continuum. So, on the one side, it is, of course, connected to the technological hype. And then it can be a kind of critical technology assessment or even foresight. If we think about, um, you know, digital assistants, for example, or like the communicators in Star Trek, these are all kinds of digital devices. And now, I mean, they're normal in our daily lives. So this would be one side of the science fiction continuum. But then it's also a distorting mirror or a looking glass, or even on the other side, a metaphor for social issues. And this is what makes science fiction so fascinating because it does kind of happen in you know our plausible, Um, scientific thinking but it's not only about technological issues so if you think about a humanoid robot for example it's not really you know about building a humanoid robot but also the robot is kind of a metaphor for marginalized people in a society or people who claim their rights and then the whole you know space for interpretation or thought experiments becomes um, a lot broader and bigger. And I think this continuum, you know, between real tech development and the metaphorical interpretation of science fiction makes it um, really fascinating also for uh, social scientists. I,
0: I. It's so funny. You mentioned uh, the clone in 1994. I think Meridiana might thought the same thing. That the second most exported Brazilian soap opera is the clone. It's it was in 97 around that, and it's, it was the story of a guy being cloned in an experiment. And she he dates partner of the the original one. It's it's really famous. It was a huge thing in Russia also. And other countries uh, whatever I travel I say I'm from Brazil, many people already ask me about this, so there is science fiction soap operas <laughs> but uh this is really interesting sorry to make the I need to make this comment because anyway i'm I'm a big soap opera fan <laughs> and it's it's interesting it's interesting to think do you would you say would you say that? It uh, makes a kind of a parallel with, for example, stories of the the Greek mythology, in which we are thinking about human problems, but with a super uh, different with this goddess, and we are we are always talking about ourselves then, or or would you say that uh, science fiction has a specifically approach? that wouldn't be so present in the other literature? Of course, regarding the technology, but I mean, when we are talking about human issues.
2: Um, Yes, certainly. I mean, science fiction is a reflection of our social fears and hopes and also trends, um, developments. And in fact, it is more about the, the present or even the past than about the future. I mean, most science fiction is set in the future. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but mostly it is. But not because this is, you know, a real prediction of the future, but because it's a plausibility why this tech development took place. So the future is more step to decide, you know, and not really to, to the future. And um, often science fiction is also called the mythology of um, the future. So it also tackles, you know, these really basic human issues, the human conditions, we are mortal and we need to die and how could we overcome those issues, um, which are also um, topics of Greek uh, methodology. Um, But what I think makes science fiction distinct as a genre is um, that it really developed in our modern times with the technological progress and um, also with these um, scientific inventions and scientific research. So you always try to base um, the, the story in a kind of scientific background. And this is plausible within this story. It doesn't really have to be plausible in the real world. So for example, a time machine, you know, there are no time machines. Um, But metaphorically, they are of course. And um, yeah, so science fiction is truly connected um, to other forms of Um, narratives or literature or storytelling um, concerning, you know, that it tackles kind of our basic problems. But um, yeah, it's also really connected to this um, technological scientific thought, which also is not only about um, science as kind of the life sciences, or natural, or chemistry, or physical sciences, but also social sciences. And uh, regarding science fiction films, uh, m- most of them in,
0: are are placed in a dystopian uh, scenario. Why why would would be that, or or am I only watching <laughs> the wrong ones?
2: <laughs> No, of course, mo- most most of it is um, dystopian. I mean, there are many reasons for that. I mean, first of all, um, science fiction films, um, it's culture, it's art, but it's also entertainment. And um, if you have a dystopian or a negative or conflictuous setting, uh, I mean, coming to artificial intelligence, you know, we have always this kind of, war um, of humans against machines like in the matrix and then you have I mean impressive visual effects or ZGI or whatever I mean science fiction was always a motor for visual effects in cinema so if we think about um, 2001 a space odyssey or avatar or again matrix for example. Um, so this really, you know, makes it kind of um, dramatic um, action. So we have this as um, dystopian features and um, there's always and um, I always quote Susan Sontag here because in an essay she said in the 1960s that science fiction is not about science. It's about disaster and disaster is one of the oldest subjects of art. Um, so. Again, it's also kind of disaster poor, you know, science fiction. Um, But then also it's um, really hard or a lot more difficult to tell positive stories. And so it could also be, you know, a laziness because it's really easier um, to have this negative scenarios than come up with um, something new. And also it could be kind of an absolution or catharsis then we are again in Greek, um, not methodology, but uh, Greek theatre, that um, I go, you know, through this very dystopian setting and then afterwards I might feel better because our reality is not really that bad how it is in, I don't know, The Matrix, for example, again. Um, So, these I mean, these are some reasons, but actually it's no excuse um, that there are no positive or more um, maybe even yeah, utopian or anti dystopian um, stories. And I think we need we need them. And um, yeah, there are approaches, for example, in Solarpunk, which also comes from Brazil initially. Um, But yeah, there's still um, a long long road to go to come up with more positive narratives.
0: Yes, um, this is uh, a question also uh, in Professor Neri in the book that uh, uh, Verigena co-wrote The Risk of Perception of Artificial Intelligence, uh, mentions, for example, that uh, Japanese have a different perception of technology in comparison to uh, the West, broadly speaking or at least with Hollywoodian uh, productions. And Verijana, based in your experience as a researcher at Yokohama University, would you agree with that? Um, how do you think uh, the technology is perceived in these different scenarios? Well, this is a very
1: interesting question. Uh, we, we discussed this topic in the book in a very explanatory way. So I will do the same here. I think it's it's a very fun topic, and um, in the book uh, the discussion regards AI specifically, not not technology as a, a whole. So I think it, it is important to to highlight that and that we made a comment about the Japanese environment, so not not the East, because the East is very diverse. So once you are in Japan it seems that you are living in a kind of past future, you know, because it is so technological, but it is technological in a 90s sense. It is technological, but it's old. So Japan is very attached to some old habits that we don't have anymore, such as using bills to pay pay something in a store. Uh, I think that over, 80% of retail transactions in Japan are still in cash. They send faxes and to send messages. They have a lot of non-digitalized paperwork. So in some areas of social life, I, I would say that they reject technology in many ways. However, there is a contradiction here because on the other hand, Japan is one of the most advanced countries regarding AI in many areas. So they have this initiative called uh, Society 5.0 that aims to use AI in many areas of social life, um, healthcare disaster response that is an issue here. And the idea of this initiative is to furnish more positive views on AI for Japanese uh, workers and and business. So I think that the Japanese policymakers uh, understood that AI may solve a lot of issues uh, of Japan because um, they have labor for shortage and the, the population is plummeting. So in Japan, that's, that's outnumber births. In, in some regions in, in Japan, they they have fewer people that they had seven years ago. And And a third of the Japanese population is older than 65 years old. So if you access the Japanese government website, you can read about this society 5.0 plan. They mentioned this possibility of having a super aging, super smart society. They plan to build a super smart city, uh, with um, a lot of robots and automation, so um, I think that Japan is is the most uh, robot integrated economy in the world, and and there are some historical aspects for that. that That's what we draw in the book. So we know that Western societies hold a lot of discussions among academics and experts on on the risk of AI. And I felt that uh, in the West, there is still a feeling we experienced uh, centuries ago with the ludism in the industrial revolution. So there is a fear of unemployment because of machines. And I don't think it is true within the Japanese environment. Um, because in Japan machine intelligence is not only positively depicted in movies, in mangas, in animes, but it is always uh, also depicted by the the Japanese academics and experts. So uh, if if you are in the streets of Tokyo, for example, you will see a, a society in symbiosis with machines. Like they have game machines for entertainment, uh, robots helping tourists with directions, especially after the Olympics, food machines of all sorts. So as I said, Japan uh, does not have enough labor force. So they need machines and they like them, especially the the ones with these anthropomorphic traits. And in the book, we mentioned that and the Japanese society live a truly robophilia, like a love for robots and not a a robophia, like this phobia that we have against robots in the West. And I think that this happens because there is a combination of two aspects. First, the uh, the cultural aspects, this um, symbolism built around the robots over, over Japanese history. And there is a real econ- re- economic situation, social economic situation uh, that urges for, for this kind of robot's help. So we can trace um, many hypotheses uh, for this Japanese robophilia. We can um, recall, for example, um, we can trace back to the 15th century when they use it to use these mechanized small puppets for entertainment, they liked that uh, very much. Um, the so-called Karakuri Ninja. It's a kind of uh, robot predecessor, I would say that. Um, but after the Second World War, while the West was producing a lot of movies depicting AI as, the, as a, a threat against humanity. Japan was producing animes and, and, and mangas representing robots as, as heroes. So there is an iconic example that I, I like to, to mention, uh, because it's uh, worldwide famous. Uh, it's the um, manga called, uh, in, the, in the West is Astro Boy. In Japanese, Atomo. And uh, it is a very interesting story. Um, because the story is a scientist it is always a scientist in the west stories is always uh there is a scientist creating robots so there is a scientist who creates a robot to replace a uh, a boy the- minister of science's son who was died, who died.
0: Thank you, Elephant. I'm going to take it, him home now. Uh,
2: quality time, bonding, all the good things. Bye, Dr. Elephant. Bye, Toby.
1: Incredible. This robot, uh, Astro Boy, was very similar to a human, but the minister realized that he does not have the same human abilities, like aesthetically uh, appreciating a flower, like this uh, very human things that we have. Uh, because like a computer, Astro Boy could just recognize geometric shapes and and some patterns. He worked like a computer. And because of that, the minister just donates Astro Boy to a circus, but then the circus uh, uh, is on fire one one day, and Astro Boy and other robots save a lot of people, and the minister ends up uh, granting civil rights to Astro Boy and to all robots in Japan. So, and, and Astro Boy is not the, the only story like that. There are other animals like uh, the Togin Twenty Eight. Also written in the fifties or sixties, I'm not right, that portray robots as as saviors, let's say heroes, saviors. I don't know. And these animas they 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 picture a future where robots and humans uh, like like embrace each other in in this technology, human symbiosis, and. I'm sure that this culture is not responsible for the proliferation of robots in Japan, but but it helped to create this more positive reception to these creatures. And when the robots became reality in the 80s and in the 90s, I think that the the Japanese uh, population was more used to to this this kind of uh, image so in the nineties um 80% of the industrial robots in the world were produced in japan so they use a lot of that and and still today japan is a leader on, on that topic so f- facing this people shortage um robots really really became the solution to help japanese society to continuously grow uh, de- despite this um this decreasing birth rate. So they use robots in healthcare areas to to substitute people who take care of elderly people or or children. Uh, They use uh, robots for therapeutic communication to entertainment, to clean, or, or to simply interact with. So if you are in Japan, you can see a lot of paper I don't know if you are aware. pepper it's a uh, white robot. Um, it, it's anthropomorphic. It's, it's the a same social one program. that
0: they have in the United States. I saw. I saw already in San Francisco. Like, a, it looks like a child robot. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It has a white a with blue
1: eyes. This one, yeah, yeah
0: I, I saw this one already. They really are generous. all
1: over Japan. Like. People interact uh, with, with pepper and there are thousands of peppers uh, across um, commercial places and houses. So uh, in Japan, automation or robots, it, less, it, it is less about threatening jobs and it's more about economic survival because uh, besides the population aging, Japan has a very strict immigration policy. They are very isol- isolationist. They are an island and they isolate themselves. That's the point. Uh, it's not like Canada that has this labor shortage and they welcome immigrants. Uh, Contrarywise, Japan just um, kind of reject immigrant people. And, and so AI may be a solution for them. and. Uh, i think that in this uh context where ai is needed because of lack of human ai may be a solution but in contexts where ai is not a necessity or uh, an immediate necessity i think that it, i think that it, it is seen as a potential risk so it's very uh hard to conceive this scenario in the US, for example, because they receive tons of immigrants every year. So it's not easy to defend the employment of robots for services or productions. And, and in Japan, it's easier. They need people. And why not artificial people? They they And these robots are really deemed as uh, humans sometimes. Because if you enter in a Japanese uh, factory, you can find robot pictures as the best employee of the month, which, which is very funny, right? So, actually, for us uh, in the West, it's almost a creepy. So, well, j- just, just to uh, wrap up. Uh, Japan is is very advanced in AI and and they are very used to use robots in their uh, daily basis. And they are expecting to have uh, until 2030 around uh, 300,000 or 270,000 artificial intelligence experts in the country. And and I'm pretty sure that the Japanese population will receive very well some kinds of AI, especially these uh, ones powered by robotic knowledge uh, and. The ones that has the have this anthropomorphized AI threats.
0: I think this is interesting because I my next question uh, will be to to Isabel about the perception of technology uh, in German sci-fi movies. But I was I'm also thinking about this. There is a shortage of uh, labor force here in Germany too, and especially some really specifically uh, trends like uh, uh, sorry not trends like um uh, West West yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you i'm listening these words always in german so i forgot the, the words in english and so I, I i cannot see i cannot see in an alt von heim for example a a robot assisting am i am i being uh wrong or as isabella <laughs> what do you think
2: um I mean there is really a lot of development going on and very many research projects from all kinds of um universities and institutions you know about robots for um for care for example but um so as to my knowledge right now they're they are not broadly um, in use and there is also a lot of ethical discussion around that and um, I, I, it made me laugh, because when um, Tatiana said um, about Japan that um, they still use fax, you know, and have a lot of um, <laughs> and paper and stuff, it kind of reminded me um, on Germany, because um, we are also, I mean, obviously, a high-tech country, um, primarily when it comes to robots and industrial robots but on the other hand i think still a lot of people pay with cash i mean here in berlin there are cafes who won't even accept a credit card i mean you need to pay cash and um, so i think this is really a, an um, interesting ambivalence um, to be you know a high tech country on the one hand and then on the other hand um, you're not so technology prone or technologically savvy. And in Germany, we have, I mean, we are not so robophilic, (laughs) obviously not. And um, there is also this um, German angst around, you know, that, um, so maybe it is also a cliche, but cliches have have always a bit of truth in them. Um, So um, we tend to be very skeptical about all kinds of things. But you ask for science fiction films and and this actually should be reflected there as well, right? And I don't see it in German science fiction films that they are particularly dystopian or negative. I mean, first of all, there are not so many (laughs) German science fiction films. This has only changed um, regarding um, AI in the last two years. So um, now we have a lot of films in that area, I think, I mean, for German, you know, measures, this is a lot kind of eight or nine and um, they are very broad. So maybe, you know, this is also kind of some film recommendations Um, ich bin dein Mensch, or I think maybe the English translation might something be, I am your human being, which is our contribution to the Academy Awards which is about a humanoid robot. And this is not dystopian. So um, it's, it's, it's actually quite, quite positive. Um, or we have, it's called um, a doku fiction, the last invention, which is about an artificial general intelligence, very cliche, very dystopian. And we have exit, which is about, you know, digital clones or digital twins, also kind of dystopian, um, there was a recent film, Das House*, the home, which is about an AI controlled home and um, another one which is called Hyperland about platforms, which is also which has a very utopian positive twist in the end. Um so maybe you know you would like to watch some of these films but what i want to say also the broad range you know from robots to um very almighty powerful systems to platforms to internet of things ai controlled homes Haben
0: Sie of zugriff auf das haus denn? Das Netzwerk ist völlig geschlossen eigener Server and the communications data are maximal verschlüsselt.
2: And yeah, I think you see that the whole topic really, really hit Germany in its popular culture right now. And um, in that sense, I cannot really see that um, we are more dystopian or more negative than than all the others.
0: No I was not even thinking necessarily dystopian or negative I was thinking but actually the first movie that I thought it was Metropolis because one of the uh, Metropolis is considered from Fritz Lang it's considered a science fiction movie
2: absolutely
0: and it was one of it it is one of the first movies ever made and it's so I, I was I was thinking I'm not uh, I'm not a specialist in, in cinema everything is new for me I'm like making notes <laughs> uh, and I I, w- I cannot also uh, stop thinking now that we were talking uh, this idea of the a uh, future of the '90s that, that the, the films in the '90s at least the most popular or at least the most popular in Brazil let's say like this maybe it was not so popular in Japan or in in Germany. Uh, were Robocop, The Terminator. This idea of anthropomorphic robots uh, using for security or, or stuff. And then in 2010, we have her, we have all the movies. And, and we, we didn't think that in the past, this kind of a, a assistance, they were only feasible in, or, or we could only concept them in, for example, uh, 2001, Space Odyssey. So why would I have a hole in my home? Nobody thought they would have Alexa in their home. At the same time, the the, the idea of home was like the Jetsons. That was like a robot doing uh, more anthropomorphic, looking like a robot. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about this. How how also our idea of what we we see as technology changed, and and it's. And it's funny that uh we we have i don't want to compare this uh and and because it will sound really superficial but when i think about the development of ai i think more in china today than in japan for example i wouldn't say this 10 years ago and in china the face recognition the the idea of that you go to the shops and don't have to pay because you have the I forgot the name of the the app, but everybody has it. So it's your uh, virtual identity, everything together. So I think I think there is also it's a change that might ref- be reflected in these movies too, and uh, and and not only movies, but all in all science fiction production. Am I am I say something too wrong or too? or <laughs> do you No think no
2: absolutely it? absolutely not i think you see that um a lot in the in the series black mirror which um reflects kind of all these um modern technological trends which have effects on society um because you know in these films with those um humanoid robots or androids i mean there is still um a lot right now i think this was not um a, a trend of the 80s or, or or even 90s you know we have ex machina we have like the new blade runner we have the new terminator uh, we have all kinds of humanoid um machines um but there is also this you know kind of reflection about um surveillance or um, what happens to our data um but still what what i think and this is also kind of, I mean, it's not really problematic, but I think um, we shouldn't do, you know, the category error that science fiction is really about tech. Um, I mean, there are some people saying that, um, yeah, and in science fiction, you know, all of our fears are reflected um, towards concerning technology. And I guess it is the other way around, because, like, authors or script writers directors, they want to tell a dramatic story and then AI is the perfect tool, you know it's not like I want to. kind of tell a story about AI and now it's going to be dystopian I think it's really the other way around and because of that we have. um, very often this conflict against humans uh, this conflict of humans against machines. Or humans against in against a powerful AI system, because then you have um, an antagonist, you have an all-powerful antagonist, and you as um, the audience you understand the conflict. But this is not the real conflict we have in society. We don't have a conflict, and humans against machines, because behind algorithms, AI machines, they are again human interests. I mean, if you look at, for example, the Facebook algorithm, the Facebook algorithm is not, you know, uh, a bad, evil machine we need to fight. It's the profit interest of Facebook to have an algorithm who polarizes that people stay on the website and, you know, and and in this way. science fiction, again, is a metaphor. For example, if we have an uprising of robots because they are used as labor slaves. This is a metaphor for real people working under conditions like slaves. This is a critique on capitalism or critique on the neoliberal system. Um, Whereas when when i criticize real technology it's always about conflicts in our society between interest groups between like the society and corporations or the the public authorities or there is not this thing human against machine and um you know this is yeah this is kind of a a, a misinterpretation, and it facilitates things. Actually, it distorts our real challenges regarding AI, and it also impoverishes science fiction because then you have only the interpretation, um, like it 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 was real technology. And um, yeah, I think these two two ways of interpretation should really be separated. I am,
0: what do you think it would be our really, actually this question is for both, but what are are really challenges with AI or really real issues with AI in this manner that we are not being able to see? Whoever wants to start this difficult question that we didn't talk about it before.
1: (laughs) Well, I I think that as Isabella was uh, saying, uh, sometimes we, we overemphasize the idea of this implausible AIs and humanoids, uh, robots taking over the world. So I think that we end up overshadowing real issues uh, we are facing uh, today. And well, like, it is true that robots directly replace human work positions. But this is something that we have been facing since the Industrial Revolution. So today we we must discuss uh, other more real and unpredictable risks that sometimes do not appear in in fictional narratives, such as um, the biases. So you're facing biases ingrained in AI databases that uh, end up profiling people wrongly, for example. And this is a real issue between people and machines that hit us at, at the heart of what we believe as an equal and, and free society should be. So um, be sure that any fiction could foresee this kind of consequence, like the bias in, in databases uh so in in that sense uh the, the fictional narratives are a bit fragile because it is hard to foresee all the outcomes and risks and scenarios that an ai may create like biases and um and i, I think that maybe th- th- this is the point that we should uh discuss i, I don't know if I go further, but, but biases is, is definitely something that uh, is something that we are living today and and is a kind of risk that fictional narratives could not foresee.
2: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Um, data bias is really one of the, the key risks and challenges. And what um, i would yeah I would like to say also, um, it 's connected to biases. What worries me is um, if public authorities use algorithmic systems because they claim you know it to be more neutral because um, actually humans are biased, and then we have technology which is not biased or neutral. And um, there are a lot of examples from the U.S. when it comes to that, you know, that um, 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 offenders are kind of scored due to algorithmic systems if they need to remain or get out of jail or teachers or whatever, but there are also examples in Europe you know we we like to tend to look over the Atlantic and say oh in the US it's so bad, but there are really. Um, many examples also in Europe, where public authorities use algorithmic systems and um I, th- I think this is problematic for for several reasons, so first. I don't think that a democracy is only about elections. I think democracy is also about protecting minorities and also to develop visions for the future. And um, of course, um, you know, you shouldn't waste public money. So public money should be spend as efficient as possible. And this is also a reason um, for using algorithmic systems because they are cheaper, You know, they are <laughs> neutral, they are fair. So it, it's all better. But what the problem is that these systems rely, again, the data bias on, on, on data from the past. And um, so I'm not really building up a vision for the future but I'm kind of living in the past. Um, so, I mean, for example, there was last year there, 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 there were these fact the algorithm um, um, revolts. Yeah, it was not really a revolts demonstration in the UK um, because um, they couldn't do the schools, the, the students couldn't do the final exams because of the Corona pandemic. So um, there was an official algorithm kind of generating um, the last the, the grade, the accents, um, to, um, so that the students have a final grade and could go to university or not. And this um, final grade was based on a certain data, like, for example, how the school performed in the past, how the class performed in the past, and so forth and so on. So. The point was that students from um, kind of a school which performed weakly because there was not a lot of money, you know, they are in a neighborhood which is not good, they um, obtained um, not so good grades. It was not their personal performance, it was just in relation to the past to other schools. And of course, elite schools, because they have a lot of money, you know, they're in a good neighborhood and so forth and so on. So the students there received really good grades. And this cannot be the vision of the future, I guess, for a state, you know, because in fact, if I have an algorithm like that and it shows me, oh my God, okay, based on the past data, past performances, whatever the data points are, um, based on that data, this school performs really weakly and the students perform weakly, I'd say, you know, they need kind of extra support and not less. And this is always the point, you know, if you have also, um, you know, social benefits or whatever, um, and you calculate that with algorithms based on past data, the ones who are already weak, they again, get um, less money or they are kind of castigated, you know, for just being poor. And um, yeah, again, the point, so I can use those systems and see as a democracy, okay, there are weak points. I need to support those people more and not less. And this is also a point that that worries me because um, the excuse or the legitimation is so easy because you just say you know it's fair it's neutral it's a machine it's cheaper um, why not just kind of do it like that. Um, yeah so I guess we really need good standards and ethics and regulations for for that. I just to mention this, I didn't
0: mention this in the beginning of the episode. This is one of two episodes about artificial intelligence. So the idea was uh, in this episode, we do a more broader uh, thinking about AI. And the next episode, um, we're still confirming the guests, but uh, we will have a discussion about usage of uh, AI in governments and the bias question will come up. Uh, really strong. So not to, this is not a hole that we left in blank.
2: But it's uh, we. The idea was to talk a little bit. No, about ab- absolutely. More. But these are, you know, the kind of topics science fiction does not really tackle it that much. So yeah,
0: and and I have a last nice question, uh, really quickly, because our time is about to be up. Uh, in many movies, um, the threat of artificial intelligence uh, is intensifying, but a kind of a, vulnerab- a vulnerability uh, to which other the characters are exposed. So there is this cl- classical scene of how in 2001, in which uh, Dave wants to shut down the machine. And then he the machine has the control of the room and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dave. This mission is too much important for me to let you, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said, no, you cannot come up. I saw you were talking <laughs> with the other guy. I didn't hear it, but I read your lips. Hello, oh, Hal, do you read me?
2: Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you.
1: Open the pod bay doors, Hal.
2: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it.
0: I don't know what you're talking about, Hal.
2: I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen.
0: so in this case they were like totally depending of of this uh, of the machine to be even able to shut it down and uh and i think this is a beautiful metaphor to be honest um and let me think if we are taking the necessary measures to not make ourselves so vulnerable this is a, a little bit what we have been talking about uh about bias but i'm i'm i'm, all, I'm also thinking here about um, profit-oriented algorithms, not only uh, decision-making algorithms. I'm, I'm thinking also in this other uh, in this other uh, sense. Are, are we making ourselves too much vulnerable to to biases or, or mistakes that the machines could make? Whoever feel like answer this before,
2: <laughs> you um, choose. <laughs> I mean I just just a quick comment on that. Um I guess probably yes, because we freely giving away um away our data. And people always say like um, I don't care because I have nothing to hide. Um, yeah, I mean it's not about you know what you're I don't know doing secretly in your bedroom or whatsoever, it is about things that um, influence how are you treated, for example, by public services or I don't know if you use a Mac or another computer you get different prices for goods or things like that. So I think um, we shouldn't be more private with um, our data
1: well. Yeah, maybe, maybe um I, I think that we, we have some, some paths here, like um this the scene that you brought, uh Jessica, that how was commanding the, the spaceship. They they were completely vulnerable, but they could stop it. So I believe we can stop uh, AI when we are in an extreme situation. And the point is, I think that this scene show us more than uh, the vulnerability. What this scene is showing to us, it's about trust. So like um, some trust is something that we have to develop when it comes to AI systems. And this, uh, this example of how is, is very good. And trust is always the opposite of risk. So when we trust something, we must be aware of risks and be cautions for mitigating these risks when possible. So trust and risk always involve probability. Nothing is 100% predictable. So it is impossible not to be vulnerable to AI systems. So once we decide to transfer some decisions to AI, uh, this example that Isabella uh, said about Compass, the the, uh, AI system used by the American judiciary that helps to profile offenders for, for alternative sanctions. Uh, here, the judge is partially transferring his decisions to free or to keep someone in prison. Uh, so he's transferring his decision to an AI system. And in that case, the offender is completely vulnerable to an to AI system, right? So. What what can you we do uh, when we face this kind of situation? We can blindly trust AI systems like it, it happened with Hall and what seems very fictional to me. So um, this idea that AI is commanding everything and the astronauts were completely vulnerable up to the point something goes wrong and they need just to destroy uh, an AI system and something that does not happen in reality. Or we can inspect these AI systems to understand if what they are doing is the, are the correct decisions. And we can try to fix uh, some errors or bias. And that's why it, it emerged this uh, sub-area of AI called explainable AI. But... Um, I would say that explainable AI tries to understand and mitigate risks and and to put we in, in a more not vulnerable position, but we do not assure that we really understand what machines are doing. And we we do not assure that we will avoid some error. So we can explain what they are doing sometimes through explainable AI because uh, explainable AI, uh, it's a kind of translation of the decisions they mention of a machine, which is very complex into something much more simplest that we can understand and access, but we cannot guarantee some biases or errors because most of the times the biases are social biases. So the databases are, um, the data sets are reflecting what is happening in society So it's a kind of bias augmentation, it's what AI does, Uh, it augments. So uh, Isabella is right when she says that, I think that the only way to avoid this vulnerability is trying to regulate when it's possible and when it's necessary. So we can decide not to use AI systems in the decision-making situation or in occasion where human lives are involved and I think that this is the only way to definitely prevent this kind of vulnerability because there are very, very difficult technical uh, challenges to correct this kind of things. And some things we will not correct. We, they will, uh, we must just trust and, and that's it. And I'm, I believe that society uh, adapts to technology and shapes technology too. Like uh, I, I, I don't believe that we are completely vulnerable that we don't have agency uh, when dealing with AI. So when when it comes a new technology like uh, electricity, a, a, a side product of this is to be electrocuted. It's a possible risk. It's a possible harm. But but then. Uh, again, society comes with circuit breakers and they just mitigate this kind of risk. So there is this technological cycle where humans are adapting technology and technology is accepted and adapted by humans. So I think that this first vulnerability uh, always happens when a new technology is launched. but little by little, we try to prevent, mitigate the risks, create new technologies. So when internet came, we had these uh, spans and viruses, and then we created anti-spans. And now we have a a new harm like fake news, and we are trying to deal with that. So I don't know, I I am, uh, I believe in human agency. Like we are not completely vulnerable or we can do anything. It's just this technological cycle of adapt- adaptability that we are facing. So we can go on and, and, and mitigate risks uh, in, in the future. Unfortunately, our time is up.
0: It's, it, this was a really interesting talk I must say (laughs) it was really interesting to uh to go a little bit beyond the the public administration and and talk about even Astro Boy I know Astro Boy I didn't know the story so uh and also about how how can we think and what is what belongs to the fiction and what belongs to the reality So, I want to thank you uh, both Isabella and Veridiana for being with us today and for uh, participating in this really, really interesting conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jéxica, and congrats for your project, it's very interesting. Well, and I would like to thank you all who
0: is watching us or hearing us today. Data Talks is a series of talks between experts from Brazil and Germany who discuss the use of public data in today's society. Uh, The Data Talks is an initiative from myself, Jessica Furt, as a part of the German Chancellor Fellowship from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation and it's hosted and supported by the Brazil Center of the University of Münster in the framework of this strategy. Strategic Partnership Project VVU.USPI, funded by the DAAD. I will see you in the next talk. Have a nice week, happy holidays, and a happy new year. Goodbye.